called Matters of the Heart. I want to talk today about why we do what we do. Not just why we do the simple everyday things, but why we do those things that we'd like to stop doing. Or why we don't do the things that we determined it was very important and good to do. I found an ancient diary entry. You like to read other people's diaries? Okay, well you get a chance to today. Okay, And I want you to notice this problem is ancient. This is not a modern problem. Now we've got lots of modern problems. This isn't one of them. This is an ancient, as old as mankind problem. Here's what someone wrote. Something has gone wrong deep inside of me, and it gets the better of me every time. I have the desire to do the right thing, but I can't carry it out. I actually fail to do the good I want to do, but the evil things I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I keep on doing what I do not want to do, it is obviously no longer I who does it. It is the power of sin living deep inside of me. So I find this principle at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's will, but I also see another law at work in me, waging war against my mind and making me a prisoner of the sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body that is the constant loser in this battle? Question. Can you relate? Have you experienced this kind of frustration? Any guesses who that was that wrote that? That was the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. I read it from the Message Bible, so it would sound a little more contemporary. But those are the words of Paul, the Apostle. Some people who find it confusing that he would say these things will say, well, that was Paul before he became a follower of Christ. (laughs) A simple little check on the text will prove that was not the case. This was long after Paul not only was saved, but he was an apostle and a leader in the church. And he's saying, I've got a problem. And you can relate. Well, today I'm going to give you some help. The help I'm going to give you isn't help that I have to give, but help from the Bible. The answer to this age-old problem actually lies in the pages of Scripture in a word that keeps getting repeated. There are certain words in the Bible that we call key words. They are, many of them, everyday words that you use in church all the time. And so, you think you know what they mean. The problem is that oftentimes words that we use all the time today had a very different meaning when they were put in the Bible many, many, many years ago. A key word is an oft-repeated word in Scripture whose definition unlocks 
the greater meaning of a larger passage. In other words, there's one word, and typically if it's a key word in a certain paragraph or passage, it will get repeated over and over and over and over again. And if you're misinterpreting or defining the word, you're going to miss the whole point of the passage. If you've got the right definition, even if the whole passage is a little bit foggy, it will suddenly become clear as you put the right meaning of the word in. Let me give you some examples of keywords in the Bible. Uh, to be a keyword, I would say it needs to be used at least 50 times or more in the Bible. That's, that's my test. These are all ones that are used 120 times or more in the Bible. The word pray and prayer. You're probably not surprised. 121 times in the Bible. The word joy, 218 times in the Bible. The word faith, 270 times in the English Bible. The word love, 561 times in the Bible. Now, what word do you think in the English language is used more than the word love? Yeah. Give you a little hint today. It is the word heart. 570 times Old Testament, New Testament. Gospels, epistles, prophets, wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs, and the law. Love. 570 times. The problem is that we have a modern usage of the word love, right? You probably used the word love this week, and you didn't just use it in church. You probably used it to another human being already today if you've been encountering other people. All right? The word love is commonly used in our language, and we know what it means to us. To us, it means I have a high level of affection for you. That's a perfectly good modern usage of the word love. You might be surprised to find that never one time in the Bible is it used that way. In fact, uh, we sometimes say heart, place where emotion occurs. And yet, when the Bible uses a metaphor using a human body organism or organ to represent it, it doesn't use the heart. Anybody know what organ it uses to represent love? Yeah, the bowels, the intestines. Okay, so it's like I'm going to give a little suggestion this year just to just to change things up a little bit on Valentine's Day. How about we start making intestine shaped cards for Valentine's Day? No, you're right. That wouldn't work. Keep with your heart. Not a problem. It's just that when you read the word in the Bible, don't think Valentine's Day because it's probably not talking directly, at least about feelings of affection. Two common usages in modern English. One, heart, the organ located in the center of the chest that pumps blood throughout your body. How many of you are not surprised to find that when the Bible says heart, it's not talking about that? Never one of the 571 times talks about the physical organ in your chest. The second usage is the source of deeply felt Emotional response. I love you with all my heart. Also, 
Zero of the 571 times is the word heart used in this way. Again, nothing wrong with using it that way in modern English. That's not what it means in the Bible. Well, is it even important or am I hair splitting? Well, let me tell you how important it is. God says this through the prophet in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. What do we look at? How you're dressed. Whether you're putting on a few pounds or not. That's what we look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Today... God is looking right through everything at your heart. I can't do that. You can't do that to another person. That's why judgment isn't given to us. But God is looking at the condition of your heart. So let's cross this a little bit with science then. Science actually reveals the fact that when they take the word heart and what the Bible says about the heart and say what part of the Bible best reflects that meaning, they almost always come to the conclusion that the heart is actually not part of your feelings, or not part of your circulatory system, but in your brain. You may remember, the proverb says, as a man thinks in his brain, what's the word there? Heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. (laughs) The Bible is obviously referring to one part of the brain. How remarkable is the human brain? This is from the book, The Signature of God, by Grant Jeffrey. Evolutionists believe that the complex systems found in living creatures have been formed as a result of random chance. However, King David declared in the 139th Psalm, You, O Lord, form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully... And wonderfully made. Consider the case, says Jeffrey, of the human eye. And ask yourself, by the way, the human eye is connected to the human brain, as we're going to find out in just a moment. Consider the case of the human eye and ask yourself whether or not such an astonishingly complex system could have occurred by chance alone. When a baby is conceived in its mother's womb, the genetic code governing the eye programs the baby's body to begin growing optic nerves from both the brain as well as from the eye. In other words, picture the eye, the brain, and the nerve endings reaching out to each other. Each eye will have a million nerve endings that begin growing through the flesh toward the baby's brain. Simultaneously, a million optic nerves will begin growing through the flesh toward the baby's eye from the brain. Each of the million optic nerves must find and match up to its mate to enable sight to exist. 
We are impressed when highway engineers are able to correctly align two 30-foot wide tunnels dug from opposite sides of the mountain to meet somewhere precisely in the middle of the mountain. However, every day, hundreds of thousands of children are born with the ability to see. Their bodies have precisely aligned a million separate optic nerves from each eye to meet matching optic endings growing out of the baby's brain. If you think this, is mir- this miracle of design has happened to ra- at random chance, you probably still believe in the tooth fairy. The human eye has the ability to transmit to the brain over one and one-half million messages simultaneously. The retina at the back of the eye contains a dense area of rods and cones that gather and interpret information presented to the eye. The retina contains over 137 million nerve connections, which the brain uses to evaluate data in its attempt to interpret the scene in front of its eyes. 130 million of these special cells are rods that enable us to to have black and white vision. However, about 7 million eye cells are cone-shaped cells that allow us to see color. Each of these 137 million cells communicates directly with the brain, allowing us to interpret the visual image in front of us. Amazingly, scientists have discovered that while the image we receive in our eye is actually upside down, the cellular structure in our eye actually reverses the image to right side up within the eye before sending it to the mind. The eye then transmits the corrected image of 300 million at 300 miles an hour to the brain where we see the image in front of us. The human brain is the most complex organ in the known universe. While it weighs less than three pounds, it contains an amazingly intricate connection of nerves with more than 30 billion special cells known as neurons. In addition, there are another 250 million billion glial cells that facilitate communication between the neurons. Incredibly, every one of the 30 billion neurons is connected to other neurons in a staggering degree of complicated connections. Every neuron is connected directly with more than 50,000 other neurons, allowing instantaneous transfers of messages across your brain. Wow. You would agree, I would assume, that the brain is an amazingly complicated organ at the heart of who you are. Well, when considering the Bible, scientists have matched this up. They have learned that what the Bible so often refers to as the heart matches what scientists have now identified as the limbic system of the human brain. Here's a diagram of the human brain with some of the different parts acknowledged. Right there at the front, you see the A? That's the frontal cortex. The frontal cortex is where you do most of the reasoning that you deal with. When you decided to do something, okay, you decided it in your frontal cortex. Problem. When you decided not to do something that you had early told yourself you were going to do, it came from your limbic system, 
not from your frontal cortex. In fact, what we've learned is that when the limbic system kicks in, the frontal cortex shuts down and goes dead. Okay? <laughs> You're going to find out why in just a moment. You saw there also the bee, which is the place where uh, we produce speech. The C, which is the place where we understand speech. D, the parietal lobe, lobe, which has to do with, if we asked you today, how many of you are comfortable? About a third of you would be comfortable, about a third of you would be too cold, and a third of you would be having a hot flash. Okay, and if that, <laughs> that's why it's so hard to determine what kind of temperature to have in the building. That all occurred in your brain, between your ears, in the parietal lobe. Reading and retention. When you read something and then you're able to recall it, it's stored in this part of the brain. The occipital lobe, which is the place where hearing is based. And then finally, the limbic system. Now, I want you to notice where the limbic system is based. Do you see it there? It's the G. And where is it at? How would you describe that? At what part of the brain? Center. What's another word for center? Heart. It's in the heart of the brain. See, even our, <laughs> our metaphorical usage of the word demonstrates that we get that from the center of how we think. Now, what they found out is this, that if the frontal cortex is the place where you keep your day timer and make decisions and then later say, oh, you know, I've run out of time, so I'm going to have to move that to tomorrow. That all happens in your frontal cortex. But deep in your limbic system, when you decide for some unknown reason not to do something you said you were going to do or to do something you promised you would never again do, that happens from your limbic system. As they piece it together, it looks something like this. When events occur in our lives, the limbic system tags them as either safe or dangerous. Anytime you have a big experience in your life that touches you deeply, you say, whoa, not going there again. Or you say, whoo, that was fun. I hope to be able to do that a lot. One of those two things. And you put like, you ever use post-it notes? Just picture yourself in your brain putting a post-it note on it and saying like, boy, that felt good. I want to do that again sometime. Or, oh my God, whatever I have to do, I never want to have to do that again. I remember I used to, occasionally people used to recommend, back in the days when I actually had time to watch movies, recommend a movie to me, okay? And a couple of times somebody recommended a movie to me, which reminded me of the fact that people have different tastes when it comes to movies. And I remember a couple of times going, I'm sure deep in my limbic system went, yeah, never going to watch a movie they recommend again. If the experience is tagged as dangerous due to past trauma, that is, if it hurt, or if it made you feel bad about yourself, either real or imagined, and by the way, it makes very little difference. If it felt that way to you, that's how you processed it. Then it reacts by creating emotional energy to fuel a survival response. 
Which means, not only do you side in your limbic system, boy, I don't want to go there again, you start in your limbic system building a wall, going like, and I'm going to be sure that never happens again. Or, if you decided, that's a great feeling, I want to have that as often as I can, you start looking for opportunities to position yourself in places where you can do it. I, I sometimes work with people who are trying to quit smoking, and... Uh, and, and I'm amazed at some of the things they do out of their limbic system because one of the things is I've had people say, um, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been uh, quit for a week. I said, that's, that's really good. Now, be sure at least for a little while to stay away from places where cigarettes are easily accessible. Oh, no, I keep a pack in my council of my car. Why would that occur to be a good idea? For some reason, that seemed like a good idea to them. Only because they're saying, like, listen, when I'm ready to go back, I don't want to have to go, go to the you know, convenience store to get them. I want to be able to reach right there and go back. Don't do that to yourself. But your limbic system dictates many of those things. And this, in turn, creates a focused craving for behaviors that have been associated with survival in the past. That's why people who are now walking in sobriety and they're going like, man, I didn't know life was this hard (laughs) because back in the past, they had a one-size-fits-all overall solution for every problem. People treat you mean? Drink. Traffic's heavy? Drink. (laughs) Right? Your wife's mean to you? Drink. Your team lost? Drink. It's like life was simple back then, right? And now you're going, well, I think I'm going to stop drinking. Well, yeah, but what are you going to do when stress levels rise? Problem is, you're going to, out of your limbic system, be driven to do the same things you've done before that worked for you. Now, of course, your limbic system does not care if they worked for you long term. That is, if they helped you have good, healthy relationships, if they helped you keep a job, if they helped you maintain good health. Your limbic system cares nothing about that. All your limbic system is caring about is surviving that experience, that moment. And if a cigarette or a drink or whatever it is you do does that for you, you're going to be driven by your limbic system to go back to it. So, Let's go back to the Bible and look at it in this light. First, the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is very threatening to them because they think the more popular Jesus becomes, the less popular they become, and they've come to think that they're somebody because they're in charge. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees because they finally at last, and he knows it, decided to do what? Kill him. Even though they know it's a violation of their moral code. These are people who follow the law to the nth degree, and yet they're going to murder, which is a violation of part of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments, right? They're going to do it and have no problem doing it because their limbic system is telling them, you got to get rid of Jesus. He's threatening your security. He's threatening your power. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees in their sin, and he exposes the source of their evil intentions. He says, you brood of vipers, 
How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, what's in here is going to inevitably come out here. And for today's lesson, we're going to say what's here, deep in your limbic system, is going to come out when you're under stress. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. In other words, if you'd had a pleasant life and only stored good experiences back in your limbic system, it would serve you well. And chances are, that's why God designed the brain to work that way. But the problem is, we live in a fallen world. And we had like imperfect parents, imperfect teachers, imperfect police officers that stopped us. And all of these experiences fed into our feelings about ourselves and created these kind of responses. So, limbic system, heart. Now, what's the problem? In the grip of sin, and you are a sinner through and through, (laughs) by nature and by practice. In other words, your ancestors sinned, so your parents were sinners, and now you're a sinner, and you've gotten even better at it by practice than your parents were. We're all sinners. And caught in the grip of sin, the heart becomes a brutal tyrant and a terrible distortion of the Creator's intent. In other words, God, when He made us, intended the limbic system to be a source of affirmation to keep us doing good and healthy things. But now, under sin, we use it as a protection or survival mechanism to keep doing things that in the long term are killing us, even though in the short term, they might be making us feel safer. Jeremiah. Jeremiah has the difficult job of confronting Israel. And he's confronting Israel as prophets before him have confronted Israel. Israel drifts into idolatry. God speaks through the prophet and says, You know, I can't bless you if you worship idols. If you want me to take care of you as a people and give you identity as a people, then it's going to be absolutely essential that you avoid idolatry. But they would have times where they go, Oh, now we get it. We're going to serve God and Him alone. Weeks later, months later, right back into idolatry. Again and again and again. Warning after warning. God allows life to get difficult for Israel to try to discipline them to bring them back. Discipline doesn't even help. Eventually, they're going to be carried away into captivity. They're going to be in bondage. And it's all because they simply haven't listened to God. So here's what Jeremiah says. Here's your problem. The heart is deceitful. Your heart has become a liar. Your limbic system lies to you. I mean, for instance, for those of you, just as an example, if you've ever struggled with uh, an addiction to cigarettes, or you now have one, fine, no judgment, by the way, won't keep you in or out of heaven, any of that stuff. That's not what we're talking about today, okay? But you have that, okay, and you might wonder where that problem comes from. It's because your limbic system has learned to lie to you. If you've ever said, I've had somebody tell me, 
Oh, I was so do, doing so good. I quit for three months. Then my uncle died. Now, at this moment, I've got a choice to make, whether it be cruel and cold or to be sensitive to the fact their uncle died. I usually choose cruel and cold, and I'll say, like, so did that bring him back? Okay. <laughs> but it's worse than that. Because people will say, what is number one reason why people think they need a cigarette? It helps them relax. Thank you, all former smokers and smokers. Yeah, it helps them relax. Okay. They have hooked the brain up to diodes and discovered it does exactly the opposite. Smoking produces exactly the opposite neurological response as relaxing, as being at peace. Okay. But what do we tell ourselves? Yeah, I got to have a cigarette. I, in fact, we say that. I need a cigarette. Right? The heart lies to you. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Good point. <laughs> In other words, you're not going to, um, what's the word, rehabilitate your heart. <laughs> it needs something bigger than that. Third, all compulsive behaviors begin deep in the human heart. Therefore, if you're going to have change of major behavioral disorder, it has to start in the heart. It does very little good to start from the outside and work in. You've got to work from the inside and work out. Notice what Paul says uh, in the same letter that we read earlier when Paul talked about his own struggles with the heart. Paul's going to present the gospel to the Roman church as he preaches it in preparation for him coming there. And as he does, he says, you need to know that I'm going to come and preach good news and only good news to you. But before you can receive the good news, you have to understand first, what? The bad news. <laughs> okay? The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Okay? You are stuck in sin, hopelessly, helplessly, destined for hell. That's the bad news. Now, from that bad news, the good news that God offers us by grace, a solution to our problem. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. We just talked about that. What's that called? Lying. Who lie to themselves by their own wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. In other words, God has shown you that your thinking is all screwed up. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so people are without excuse. In other words, your screwed up heart is not an excuse for sinful behavior. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like 
a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Fourth point. As with every dimension of your life, there is only one Savior, Deliverer, Helper, and just one hope for a broken heart. Now, I'm using broken heart here not for wounded feelings, but broken heart for the limbic system of your brain doesn't work like it was designed to work. Paul goes on to explain that our only hope is found in a change of heart executed by God through our faith. Moses writes this, Paul says in Romans 10, about the law, righteousness that is by the law. Now, that sounds like a very biblical way of saying simply this. When you've tried to say, oh, I've got to stop doing that. That's not good behavior. That's got to stop. David, knock it off. Okay, that's the law. That's like going, you're breaking the rules. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or that is to bring Christ down. In other words, the answer is not found in me or who will descend into the deep. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. The word here speaks of the truth of the gospel. That God by grace in Christ wants to give you what you have not been able to overcome or earn on your own. Including, in our limited usage here, healing of your heart. Limbic system. The word is near you. It is in your mouth. And it is in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, not emotion, saying like, the depths of who I am, from the darkest place of why I do what I do, I believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, here's how the mouth and heart work together. Okay? Your brain tells you a lie. <laughs> but you've come through God's word, through the really great preaching of your pastor, to understand that God has a better plan and idea. So your limbic system tells you, well, just one won't hurt, and then just one more won't hurt. And then God's Word speaks back to you that you've memorized, that you've learned, and you speak it to it. If you don't learn to speak it through your mouth, is that, because there's a circular thing here, okay? 
Sometimes people will say to me, if there's anything I hate, I hate when people lie to me. And I always chuckle because who's the person who's lied to you more than any other person? It's absolutely you. Okay? And now you can pick up the truth that you come to believe in your conscious cognitive mind and speak it to your heart. That's not the way it works. Here's what God's Word says. Here's what the truth says. Here's what reality is. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. But there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. This works for everybody. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God gives this awesome promise to His people. I give it to you today. I will take you out of the nations. I'll separate you. I will gather you from the countries and will bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. In other words, I will heal and wash clean your limbic system. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Now this is a metaphorical picture. What's a heart of stone? Heart of, heart of stone is one that can't be changed. It's unchanging. It's ungiving. That's going to change. He said, I'm going to make it a heart of flesh. So that your heart can start being changed. Give you a part of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now out of your heart, you'll start doing what I've called you to do. Not just out of your head or out of your devotion to some set of rules. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. Now, As we close, we still have one remaining problem. First is, God wants to heal your heart. Second problem, that's not the whole solution. God heals your heart today. You can go right back to believing lies tomorrow. Because they're all around us in our world. Some other sinner will tell them to you if you'll listen to them. You have a role to play. The redeemed heart is an empty file, and it waits to be reprogrammed. Problem is, we drop some religious ideas in there, and then we go right back to believing all the lies that we had encompassed in our limbic system before we came to Christ. Notice what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews adds. The Word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Two-edged sword. Um, If this were written today... What uh, word do you think they might have used for a two-edged sword? Particularly those of you 
who are in the medical field. Scalpel. There's no question about it. That's what he has in mind. He goes, word of God, God's truth, reality as God says it, cuts deep. And it not only cuts deep, it cuts to edge it both ways. <laughs> okay? It cuts out the ugly mistruth <laughs> and implants His truth in your heart. God's Word can do that. Every truth you encompass from God's Word and say, that's mine. I'm going to make that mine. I'm going to take that promise. I'm going to make it mine. I'm going to follow that directive. Okay? You probably had to first cut something out that didn't believe in that, that used to think something else, that used to do it this way or think that way. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. What I've been talking to you about today is something that's utterly and absolutely invisible. Even if we had a surgeon here to cut open your brain, we wouldn't see this stuff. Okay? But it's very real, and if you've been listening, you know it's real. Okay? What they're saying is, God knows. God reaches. God heals on that level. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now, you would do well if you went and checked all the places in the Bible, 571 of them you now know, where the word heart is used and reinterpret the passage. But here's one that is a verse I bet you've heard before, but you'll never hear it the same way again. David says, Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart. In other words, I took the truth of your word, removed the lie that I, that I allowed to be placed there in my limbic system, and replaced it with your word. So, in closing, some questions. So you heard this fascinating little talk. I hope you feel that way about it. What do you need to do? Glad you asked. First, recognize that you and I and everybody sitting in this room have a problem. A problem that is so deep and pervasive that we can't change it. I can't change it. You can't change it. We can't fix it. We're screwed. Okay, you got that part? I didn't put that in the text in case anybody saw it later. What do I need to do? Invite Christ into the depths of your heart. Now, I mean it, because you're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I already took that step. Did you? Do you remember that when little kids are evangelized, we say to them, honey, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? Right? Okay. But when we say it to an adult, we never say that. I think our subconscious betrays us. We say, would you like to ask Jesus into your life? Well, that's out here, isn't it? So you may have asked Jesus into your life, and that's great because that means your life is saved, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but he's waiting to go a little deeper. You ever read that passage in Revelation where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's the door, door of the heart, right? <laughs> he's saying like, how about you let me into the deepest recesses of who you are? The place where your addictions exist, your compulsive behaviors your nasty, troublesome activities, all those things, invite Christ in. Third, 
Make a commitment to reprogram your heart with truth from God's Word. Start thinking about the Bible as a resource book for truth. Truth meaning simply reality, which is deep in my mind, I've always thought about this situation this way. But God reveals to me through His Word that this is the truth. I will believe this truth. And when faced with the ongoing echoes of that former lie, I'll speak the truth to it. And I will say, I know that that's the way I used to behave. But God, here's what you say in your word. And I'm claiming it in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today that these deep things, these dark things, are things that are not beyond you. Many of them feel like they're beyond us. But you made us, and you can heal us. You made us, and you are about the business of perfecting us. You made us.